Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is none other than Renault Laplanche, co-founder and CEO of Upgrade, a neobank that offers affordable and responsible credit to mainstream consumers. Since inception in 2017, Upgrade has surpassed over $100 million in revenue run rate and a billion-dollar valuation. Prior to Upgrade, Renault founded and ran Lending Club, a company that pioneered consumer fintech and that he took public in 2014 at a $10 billion valuation. It's also worth mentioning the Renault and Lending Club inspired a generation of fintech founders around the world. In fact, I have personally lost count of the number of guests on this podcast that have cited Lending Club as an inspiration to launch their own companies. Renault is also in a select and exclusive club of founders that have started not one, but two unicorns. Now, without further ado, join me in a wonderful interview with Renault Laplanche. Renault, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. Thrilled to have you here. Uh, we have a rock star fintech celebrity. Uh, maybe we can start by hearing a bit about your background and how you got to your current role. Yes, well, thank you, Miguel, for having me. So my background, I guess I was born in France, as, as you can tell, and grew up there in the south of France by the sea, did a lot of sailing uh, growing up. Then I studied law and, and business in France. Started my career at a um, New York-based law firm called Kerry Gottlieb in the Paris office, and then I transferred in, in 1999 to the New York office. And that was supposed to be for six months, and then I never went back. So uh, I guess I immigrated into the U.S. in 1999, so been here since. And also six months into that adventure, I got the uh, entrepreneurial bug and started my first company. It was a, a software company called Triple Hop Technologies. Uh, the name of the software was Matchpoint. And that was a sort of great adventure. Uh, it lasted about five years. The uh, company finally eventually got acquired by Oracle, which was the reason why I moved from New York to California. And stayed with Oracle for about a year, as uh, sort of many sort of acquisition deals go. And left after a year and got the idea of Landing Club. And so I founded Landing Club it was in 2006, so like 14 years ago now, and ran Landing Club for about 10 years. We did public in, in 2014, got to about $10 billion in public uh, market cap. So great adventure there. And then I left in 2016 with other members of the team and we founded Upgrade. And then we're going to talk more about both, I guess. But just to finish to the quick bio, so I now live in uh, Marin County, just north of uh, San Francisco. Still do some sailing uh, occasionally, but I'm really enjoying the, the Bay Area. Outstanding, outstanding. So you actually had your six-month stint, but instead of going back to France, you left and went somewhere new, uh, stayed in the U.S. So you did not start with fintech, but you did have that entrepreneurial bug. Where do you think it comes from? I don't know. It's, I guess, a feeling uh, that you can sort of do more 
than just being a cog in a big machine, right? which is what you are essentially when you work for a large company or if you're a lawyer or a banker, anybody who's just supporting someone else's business. It feels like as an entrepreneur, you can move the needle a lot more and really sort of build products that might not have existed if it wasn't for you. So it's a great feeling when you can be sort of helpful to sort of millions of people who become your, your customers and make a small or big difference in their life. Renault, let's talk a little bit about your fintech entrepreneurial journey specifically, because it's worth mentioning that you are one of very, very few people, maybe less than 10, who have founded two unicorns right out there. And that's not a small feat. Usually, people tend to be satisfied with just one. <laughs> so let's talk about maybe first lending club and upgrade. Why do you think you've been successful in this journey? And what lessons did you bring from lending club into upgrade? The good news is that the second is a lot easier than the first one. <laughs> it gets easier over time. And I think fintech is, to me, a great area to, back to what I was saying about being an entrepreneur, a great area where you can be sort of truly helpful to people and, and really make a meaningful difference in their lives. Essentially, helping people sort of save more money or access credits at a lower cost or get access to credits in the case we wouldn't have access. And so you can really make a big difference for a, a small business owner getting access to credit and helping that person sort of expand their business. It can make a big difference in families under a lot of credit card debt, of helping them lower the burden of that debt, or giving them access to a mortgage. So there, there's like so much opportunity to be helpful either to sort of younger folks who didn't have access to credit, or even to more and more mainstream audience that has access to credit, as is fully banked, but there's so many opportunities with fintech to bring the, the cost of money down and make it work sort of harder for everyone. Now, the business model of Lending Club, the initial one, has been significantly challenged and has transformed. I mean, we're talking a few days after Lending Club pulled the plug on the peer-to-peer -peer model. Why do you think it didn't work? I mean, a lot of the criticism has been focused on regulatory restrictions? Do you think that's it? I don't think so. I mean, if you're going into fintech, there's going to be some regulatory constraints. And for good reasons. We're dealing with people's money. It's sensitive. There should be a strong regulation around it. So I think that, I mean, the main contribution of Lending Club to fintech was really sort of starting the entire sort of consumer fintech revolution and inspiring tens of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world but also really starting the sort of online lending revolution and creating an entire industry that has now issued tens of billions of dollars of credit to families and businesses around the world. So the, you're right, the, the business model has evolved over time and it started as person to person. And then as the platform grew bigger and could sort of facilitate more credit, we quickly got institutional capital on board, which tends to be sort of lower cost, easier to manage than sort of a large number of small uh, retail investors. So I think that the retail experiment was uh, sort of helpful in a lot of ways. And I think the experience, maybe user experience, wasn't quite where it needs to be. I mean, there's, I think it was pretty involved and, and somewhat entertaining to like pick loans. 
but it was great for early adopters who want to do that work. But I think to gain really sort of mainstream adoption, we should have made the process easier and get sort of broader-based distribution, right? If you had this as a one-click opportunity at Schwab or one of the big brokers, that had been one thing. But having to go to Lending Club, open your own account, uh, to do just this and have this uh, pretty involved experience, I think it wasn't uh, the greatest way and the most efficient way to distribute consumer credit. But I'm glad we found different ways to get there. And retail investors still have access generally through a fund. So there are many funds now that are available that invest in, in, in Lending Club and other platforms. So, so retail investors continue to have access in a way I think that's lower friction and lower cost for everyone. And if I may add, you mentioned Lending Club has inspired a generation of fintech. It's not just in the U.S. We've had uh, guests from around the world, Southeast Asia, Latin America, who specifically have mentioned Lending Club as an inspiration. So that's uh, kudos to you for that. Yeah, no, I, many people told me that there is an analogy people use often, which is this like Netscape moment. So Netscape was a sort of inspiration for the first generation of internet entrepreneurs. I think Lending Club was a bit of a Netscape of fintech that way. So you took a lot of lessons, good and bad, and now you've applied them to upgrade, right? Tell us a bit about upgrade and how has the journey evolved over the last four years? Yeah, so upgrade is using, as you said, a lot of the learnings from Lending Club, a lot of the operating principles we developed at Lending Club in terms of operating at a lower cost than traditional banks and delivering a easier and better experience online and, and on mobile. But at Lending Club, maybe one of our strategic mistakes was to apply these principles to a single product, a personal loan product, a great product for consumers, but pretty narrow use case. So re-upgrade is an attempt at applying the same principles to a much broader range of banking products and services including many other credit products like credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, but also non-credit banking products. So we are launching a fruit of mobile banking platform in a few weeks from now and uh, have plans for P2P payments, savings, a lot of other banking products. Sounds like the full banking experience. Exactly, yeah. And also staying focused on some core principles that, again, we believe has the potential to change people's lives for the better, right? The, the personal loan product was a great product to refinance an existing credit card. And a lot of families went through that process and there's still a trillion dollars of credit card outstanding in the US at an average rate of 18%. So the opportunity to bring that cost down is very significant. But the personal loan product was, again, one use case. So for example, Upgrade launched last year what it called the Upgrade card which is a sort of a hybrid between a credit card and a loan and is bringing sort of great opportunity to not just refinance an existing credit card, but really replace existing credit cards with no fee, lower cost, and a more responsible way to handle credit. I think credit cards are pretty bad credit products, right? It's uh, a very high rate, high fees, and probably the worst feature about credit cards is if you only make that minimum monthly payment, it's going to take you 25 years to pay off the balance and you'll end up paying back three times what you initially charged on the card. So credit cards are extremely expensive. The upgrade card really sort of takes that credit card model and makes it more like an installment loan. 
So at the end of each month, every balance turns into an installment uh, and you can pay it down over one, two or three years. And you choose how quickly you pay it down, but you, you have to pay down principal and interest every month. That really comes with uh, greater discipline and not everybody lacks <laughs> that, that additional discipline. But for, for consumers who want to better manage their finances, better manage their credit, it ends up being a great product that's much lower cost and more responsible than a traditional credit card. So definitely sounds like you are blurring the lines between a personal loan and a credit card. How has the response been first from the users you, you mentioned briefly now, but also from the industry? Are you seeing other industry players start to kind of replicate this model? We haven't really seen any uh, any attempt at replicating it. It's a pretty complex product to put together. I mean, all these of credit card systems aren't built that way for installment lending. Visa and MasterCard are trying to bring sort of installment solutions to the point of sale. Separately, the entire sort of buy now, pay later sort of industry is also sort of bringing that installment product on some smaller purchases, shorter term. But the same idea of trying to get out of that sort of revolving debt cycle and debt trap that the credit cards are creating. So I think we're all taking a different angle. But the, the overall sort of credit card industry really would have a hard time sort of getting off that revolving model because there's like so much revenue in them for them. Right? The incentive of credit card companies to keep their customers in debt as long as possible, right? to keep that balance high. So going to an installment model where you bring down that balance every month is really not in their best interest, but it is in the best interest of the customers. And uh, the response has been phenomenal so far. I mean, we launched less than a year ago, probably going to do a billion dollars in uh, cards this year. And we think by next year, card is going to be a bigger business than loans for us. And we've already done $3.5 billion in loans. So, and then it's growing, growing at the triple digit. So saying that card is overtaking loans has no small feat. That's impressive. So Renaud, this is a very common topic on the podcast, particularly with founders. And it's the topic of culture company culture and talent recruiting and attraction. You know, you're a third-time founder. I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. What's your approach to attracting talent? And then what kind of culture do you offer once they join the company? I think people want more than a job. I mean, they want to be inspired. They want to wake up in the morning and be excited about what they're going to do. So part of it is sort of working for a company with a mission, at least with a product that really brings about change in the world for the better. Again, a lot of our team members wouldn't want to work for a bank that's trying to put their customers more into debt. They want to work for a fintech company that's trying to change that for the better. And if our only appeal was operating at a lower cost than banks, that wouldn't get us the best talent. Really, I think our sort of reason to be operating is to sort of bring about change and bring about new products that wouldn't have existed. It wasn't for the team of engineers and product people and, and marketers that upgrade to sort of bring this product together and bring them to market. So I think that's really what gets them sort of excited. And then we, we try to sort of expose team members as much as possible to feedback from customers. Because at the end of the day, that's who we are working for. And we get a lot of unprompted uh, sort of testimonials and stories from our customers 
We try to share that. We share a lot of data. I also try to expose the team to more qualitative feedback because we do get occasionally this customer telling us how much we change their lives and how important this was to them. And that clearly is really sort of a fuel for all of us to go back to work and, and do more. Yeah, well, you mentioned going back to work, and I guess we're talking in the sixth or seventh month of a pandemic, and I'm sure a lot of you also want to go back to the office. How has the company sustained the crisis, but I guess also how has it affected your clients? I mean, it's been surprisingly fine. So we were worried in the first few weeks of the pandemic that we'd see a lot of defaults on the existing loans. Uh, So we tightened the policy a lot and we offered a lot of opportunities for our clients to ask for a loan deferment or loan modification to go through the, the crisis. The unemployment situation has been bad for sure, but income has been supplemented by a lot of government programs that have really kept our customers and in general the consumer population in the US in a relatively okay shape. I think generally our customers are better off than the average because we have to sort of pass our underwriting and we have pretty tight underwriting guidelines. Our customers generally have about $95,000 in individual income, which is about twice the national average. So they tend to be underrepresented in the $40,000, pretty much have no customer earning $40,000 or below. This is the main category that's been impacted by the unemployment. So I think generally the combination of a positive selection of our customer base and the government programs have sort of kept them in a sort of good situation. So credit has been fine. General sort of revenue is going to be up almost triple digit this year from last year. Upgrade card is going even faster. Mobile banking, I think will be um, sort of benefiting from a lot of people having discovered uh, sort of banks outside of the branches over the last six months. So I think overall, the, the activity hasn't suffered too much from the crisis. Internally, it's also been surprisingly fine. I mean, most of our team members have been pretty productive and reasonably sort of happy to be working from home and take a break from commuting for a few months. I mean, it does get old or generally pretty, uh, pretty impatient to go back to the office. I think where it's been the most impactful is in our ability to hire new team members and onboard them and integrate them to the team, right? It's a lot harder to um, get people trained and acclimated to everything we do and even socially to get them to be part of the team when they're only meeting on Zoom. Absolutely. Definitely a challenge. And it's interesting that you've continued to fire on all cylinders and grow during this time. A lot of fintech companies are trying to weather the storm and come out even stronger. How do you envision the months after we sort of start getting back to normal? Are you thinking about it strategically or will you continue at the same rate that now? There might be another opportunity to accelerate that time, particularly again with mobile banking launching very soon. I think there's going to be really good synergies between loans, credit cards, and mobile banking. A lot of neobanks around the world, and especially in the US and Western Europe, have sort of either payment or banking or investments, don't generally have the full package and often don't have credit capabilities. If we look at what's happening around the world, the only besides upgrade, 
a couple of credit-led neobanks, that would be sort of Nubank in Brazil and, and Pinkoff in, in Russia. I think we have a similar model where so if we, a lot of the monetization strategy happens for credit. Right? Credit is 70% of banks' revenue from the US. So that's where most of the revenue comes from. The mobile banking piece can really help us acquire more customers faster and cheaper. So we believe that there might be a perfect storm for, for upgrade. We are now at $125 million revenue, profitable, growing at a triple digit. So it's hard to ask for more. But there, there might be a perfect storm in the spring where the vaccine is available, so the COVID crisis gets in the rearview mirror, and we have all three products, mobile banking, cards, and loans, uh, working in a synergistic way that could sort of further accelerate our growth. So, Renaud, we have quite a few listeners who are builders themselves, either founders, aspiring founders, or they're building within an established company. And you know, since we have you here, a serial entrepreneur, I got to ask you a couple of questions about it. And first of all is, how have you navigated your relationship with your investors? What is the best approach? And you've clearly done it successfully, right? But What's the best approach to managing this relationship? I think it's like everything, right? It's, it's always better to meet people when you have nothing to ask and nothing to sell. So uh, like getting to know the VCs outside of a round of investment can be really productive, especially right now where it's hard to meet in person, you're only meeting on Zoom, so it takes longer to actually get to know people. So I always felt like getting to know um, people we, we feel would be your top VC target in the next round, getting to know them a few um, weeks or months earlier is useful, both to build a relationship, also for them to get really comfortable with the company and see the execution over several months. Right? It becomes not just a like, spot decision for the VC, but really more of a rational decision over uh, seeing a, a trend. It's a bit like what we do in credit. It's easier for us to give a second loan to a customer we've seen as of performing for months or years than underwriting a new customer. So I think the same goes with venture capital. Yeah, it's the famous ask for money, you get advice, ask for advice and you get money. <laughs> exactly, yes. You need to ask for advice first. <laughs> and how about outside of fundraising, any reflections when it comes to entrepreneurship and building a lasting company? I think I always say that, that it always comes down to the people, right? It's what's going to eventually turn the company into a great company. And particularly the sort of hiring decisions you make in the early days are going to have long-lasting ripple effects on the culture of the company and also just the quality of the talent and the skill set you're going to get into the company. I mean, there's a rule that I've seen playing out all the time is you, when you hire A people, you're hiring, best case, you'll be hiring A people. If you hire B people, they'll be hiring B or C people in terms of like grade and, uh, and level. So it's like, if you don't get the top talent in on the ground floor, there's no chance someone who's a sort of average manager is going to get you fantastic new hires. Are always going to get you new team members that are their quality or less. So I think it's really sort of important to really raise the bar on co-founders. If you're getting a co-founder or the first few hires, because again, that's going to dictate the quality and the culture 
of everyone that person is going to be hiring over time. And it's tempting, especially when you start getting your first VC investment and you go and fill 10 jobs and uh, you have so many other things to do than recruiting. It's tempting to just lower the bar a little bit. And at that time, it feels like getting someone in that seat, getting a body is more important than getting the best person, but it's a trap and you shouldn't <laughs> fall into that trap. Getting the best person for that position, least early on, is uh, absolutely critical. Definitely some wise words right here. And, and I guess quick follow-up on that. Obviously, talent is a big focus for most or all startups, right? And as fintech continues to heat up and grow, there has to be a, a war for talent, if you will. Have you noticed uh, a change from hiring people 12 years ago, 14 years ago to now? Has it become more competitive? It has, but the good news is the talent pool has also increased, right? So 12 years ago, you couldn't find anybody with fintech experience. Uh, so you had to take a chance on someone coming from a big bank and take a chance that they would be able to handle all this a faster pace, less structured environment of a startup. And I mean, it's, it could be hit or miss, right? It, it's really hard to evaluate that ability to be productive in an entirely different environment than where you've spent all of your career. So now at least the talent pool has increased. There are a lot of people with successful fintech experience, so it's good. There's also a lot of competition for sure. But I think what, what we're seeing also is particularly with what happened in the last six months, people being just more comfortable working remotely and us being more comfortable hiring remote folks. So that gives us more possibilities. I know that we can hire people in, in different places, either creating satellite offices or just hiring people who would be working from home indefinitely. And maybe we'll be spending a week at the office every month, every two months to sort of build these social connections and really get to know their, their co-workers. We've actually at Upgrade, we have most of our operations in Phoenix, Arizona. The headquarters is still in San Francisco, but we uh, also have a sort of engineering development center in Montreal, Canada where we found a lot of great talent, sort of lower cost than we do in San Francisco. It's less competitive. Also, the cost of living is lower in Montreal. So everybody is getting good value out of relationship. That's a pretty big talent pool. But I heard Vancouver is also a good place for us, engineering talent. Vancouver is great, but I can understand why you chose Montreal. I'm guessing you feel almost at home there. Exactly. I can read the street signs. <laughs> oh, fantastic. No, no, really, really good stuff. Before we go, we always love asking about personal hobbies, but in this case, I already know that you have a big hobby and that is sailing. And it's not just a hobby, right? You have some records under your belt. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got pretty competitive uh, <laughs> sometimes. So, we, uh, we did this amazing thing in like, 2015. Chartered a, one of the fastest boats in, in the world, 100 foot uh, trimaran, and went on for a series of world records. Ended up getting three of them the Trans Pacific, the British Channel, and uh, Newport to Bermuda. Two of his records have been hidden since. Uh, I still hold the uh, Newport to Bermuda record. So it was really, really exciting. We think we did the, the whole thing in um, sort of less than 24 hours at a 27 knot average speed. 
which any of your listeners is a sailor, you, you, uh, you know what that means. <laughs> we had a guest who said his claim to fame was racing against Larry Ellison. I mean, your first car was acquired by Oracle. Any chance that you've also raced together? No, no, I, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, the America's Cup, which is what us of Oracle and Larry have been uh, I've been sailing in the last few years is out of my league in terms of price point, 200 million per sort of challenge kind of budget. But also we've never raced with or against Larry Edison. But they are um, the sort of fast offshore races or a lot of, and you also, it's a personal adventure and you, you learn a lot about yourself when you like four or five days in a sort of completely different environment and you sleep for four hours. You go on deck for four hours, and then you go back to sleep for four hours, and you like turn every every four hours. Like this is the your entire biological rhythm changes, and you learn a lot about yourself. Ah, doesn't sound easy, but uh, I'm glad you shared that. Well, Renaud, thanks again. Really, really fascinating stuff. Congratulations on everything. Now you are part of the Wharton family. You're always invited to stop by particularly once things get better and we'll be following closely your future success. Thank you, Miguel. I'm looking forward to stopping by when we travel again. Thank you, Rena. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wartum Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 